Good morning. It's great to be with you all. Happy Mother's Day to you moms who are out there. Let's bow in a word of prayer as we consider this passage together. Father, we're grateful for this day. This is the day that you have made and let us rejoice and be glad in it. Glad in it. We thank you for your presence here by your spirit in this room. We thank you for your word and its amazing power. We thank you that you uh, deliver truth to us and that you do it kindly and gently. And I pray today that as we consider this passage together, Father, that we would submit ourselves to you, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would receive what it is that you have for us. And God, we thank you uh, that we can hear this word in a language we understand. We're grateful for your revelation to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I grew up as a native of Arlington County, and in the summer before my eighth grade year, the school system made a decision to expand the boundary of walking distance for the activity bus. And so when I had sports practice, I had to now walk a mile and a half from Kenmore, then intermediate school, to my house. And this required not only walking along the very busy Arlington Boulevard or Route 50 for most of the way, but I also had to cross it. And my parents had stressed to me over and over and over that I could only walk along Route 50 in places where there were sidewalks. So as I was walking home one afternoon with two of my best friends from the neighborhood, we came to a place where the sidewalk came to an end and it moved to interior block. And so I chose to obey my parents and follow an inner street. You can see my halo here. While my friends opted to stay on the busy road. And so knowing that we were going to be dividing ways, we agreed to meet at the next block. But when we got to that point, they were nowhere to be found. And I looked in every single direction. We were on a highway and I couldn't see them until out of the corner of my eye, I spotted them across Route 50, hiding in a ditch. I could just see the very tops of their heads. And so rather than give them the satisfaction of their little prank, I just continued to walk home. And what I found out was that it wasn't a prank. They completely ghosted me before ghosting was even a term. Uh, when I opened my locker the next morning, my best friend and locker partner had cleared out all of his things with no warning and with no altercation that I could speak of. He went from being my best friend to being no friend at all. We had been friends since we were six years old. We lived across the street from each other, and he did not say another word to me until our 10th reunion from high school. Now, the week's and months that followed that incident were so painful. They were some of the most painful days that I can remember in my entire life. I had to eat lunch by myself at the school cafeteria, which is not a good look for junior high. Uh, it was too late to make new friends. I had no one to hang out with after school. And I remember just, just crying out on our, on our sofa, just weeping over the heartbreaking instance of, of losing my best friends. And I had no idea why it happened, none whatsoever. Now, my, my instance came early, but it's inevitable that we will all face, at some point in our lives, 
some form of betrayal, whether it be friends in childhood or adulthood, colleagues, and sadly, even for some here, parents, siblings, spouses, or children. And it hurts. It really hurts to be betrayed by someone you love, someone you trust. Perhaps you've experienced a recent betrayal yourself, or maybe you're experiencing one right now. Now, I wish I could go back to my eighth grade self and share the hope found in our passage this morning because really I had nowhere to turn. I had no answer for the sadness that I felt. Maybe you're in need of some encouragement today, and I hope that God's word is a bomb to your soul. We're continuing our sermon series in the life of King David, and this morning we're considering all of 2 Samuel 15, where David faces a significant betrayal. And it's through the betrayal of this chapter uh, that David uh, responds in faith. This chapter does not contain an immediate resolution, but it does point powerfully to Christ and his glorious gospel hope. I wish that I had known the theme of this passage when I was 13 years old, and that is that in the face of betrayal, bear Christ's reproach and seek his eternal city, a city marked by the loyal love of a good and gracious God and his betrayed son. Recall that David has committed gross sin in his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of her husband Uriah, and his lack of moral standing combined with passivity towards his own children has led him to overlook his own son Amnon's abuse of his daughter Tamar. Another son, Absalom, has taken justice into his own hands and killed Amnon, and he then retreated to exile in Geshur. But David permitted Absalom to return to Jerusalem, where he lived for two years without even seeing his father, the king. And yet David still chose not to address Absalom's murder of his brother Amnon, which was David's son. With Absalom back in Jerusalem, we find three movements in 2 Samuel 15. Absalom's heart-stealing conspiracy, David's heartbreaking flight from Jerusalem, and then three examples of heartwarming loyalty. Absalom's conspiracy begins to unfold in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel 15, so I invite you to turn with me there. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, at the end of chapter 14, we found Absalom, King David's son, returning from exile and bowing prostrate before his father in a display of submission and loyalty and faithful service. But in our chapter, it becomes clear that these gestures were terribly insincere. Absalom has a plan. It's a conspiracy, really, to steal the hearts of the Israelites so that he might eventually steal the throne of his father. And the first clue that we have of this plan is his ambition. He collects the trappings of royalty before he's even a king, symbols of strength like soldiers and chariots and horses. Compare this to the words of his own father, David, in Psalm 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And when we compare Absalom's maneuvers to David's posture while he waited in the wings to become king, the contrast is stark. Although God had proclaimed through Samuel that David would indeed replace Saul, he went out of his way to honor the current king. Even when Saul was trying to kill him, David showed great restraint and respect and humility as he waited to ascend the throne in God's perfect timing. 
But the ambition of Absalom, who, by the way, has no promise to become king, drives him to get up early each and every morning and stand at the city gate to garner favor. Verse 2, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now Absalom's early morning station at the city gate enabled him to intercept people as they came to Jerusalem, seeking judgment from the king in cases of dispute. And standing at the gate, a place where leaders gathered, was a power move. And asking people where they were from was yet another sign of authority, another stance of authority. This was the type of question that a superior would ask an inferior and not vice versa. And here we see the second sign of his brewing conspiracy. He's ingratiating himself to the people. This is a deliberate effort to gain favor, to make himself more likable to others. And it seems that Absalom was particularly targeting Israelites outside of Judah for when they would say what tribe they were from, he would agree with their complaint. Rather than showing true wisdom and discretion that befits a godly leader, Absalom told the travelers what they wanted to hear, that their claims were good and right. And his ambition led him to misrepresent the king. Because one way to gain favor is to put down the higher-ups. To highlight their weaknesses instead of their strengths. And Absalom suggested that the king hadn't even designated anyone to hear their complaints. Sure, the wise woman of Tekoa gained a hearing from David, but she was from the tribe of Judah. Is he favoring his own tribe? These were the sorts of doubts that the clever conniving son began to sow among the people of Israel. But he ingratiated himself not only by putting his father down, but by exalting himself in the eyes of, the, of his hearers. If only I were judged, that is, if only I were the king, then I would provide justice. And as a continuation of his royal posturing and attempts to ingratiate, Absalom flattered the people with the kisses of a king. And the result was the theft of the people's hearts. The verb theft here implies a secret, stealthy stealing. But starting in verse 7, his simple, subtle plan turns to outright deception and rebellion. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. Now, Absalom spent four years intercepting people at the city gate and ingratiating himself to all who came for a hearing with the king. And it's hard to imagine that David had no idea what his son was doing. But if he did, if he did, his failure to intervene would have been in line with his recent passivity, particularly towards his children. Absalom intentionally deceives David by creating a reason to go to Hebron, and his father gives his blessing with a typical cordial farewell, go in peace. And although Absalom's name actually means father of peace, his trip to Hebron is anything but peaceful. 
Having built alliances with the people for four years, the time has now come for him to, to seize the kingdom. And his conspiracy becomes a full-blown rebellion in verse 10. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now Absalom has been building the groundwork for this very moment when he lays claim to his father's throne. And this whirlpool of rebellious conspiracy begins to pull in a wide range of people from 200 guests who have absolutely no idea what's going on whatsoever to one of David's most trusted counselors, a man named Ahithophel, whom Absalom calls for as he, as he offers what appears to be some sort of ceremonial coronation sacrifices. The conspiracy has now gained sufficient strength as the people siding with Absalom grow in number. Now, while none of us here is in danger of usurping a throne anytime soon, uh, there is still application for this section of the passage, and it's, it's wide-ranging from friendships to parenting to office politics. And it starts with the consideration of Absalom's greed. He wanted something that did not belong to him, and that is his father's throne. And he was frustrated with David's incompetent leadership, his abdicated responsibility to protect his own daughter Tamar, and thinking that he could and would do a better job than his dad, Absalom launched a slow-burning plan to take his place. They can start with a desire, perhaps a good desire, but desires unchecked can lay a stranglehold on our hearts and become something that we simply cannot live without. And when desire gives way to greed and then theft, it's really clear that God's lines have been crossed. Kids, uh, you might be tempted to tattle on your siblings or your classmates, to elevate yourself and gain favor with your parents or your teachers. Teens, perhaps you've given in to gossip or even ghosting people to gain favor and establish security among your peers. Parents, in dealing with your children, do you ever compare yourself to your spouse in their presence to gain their preference? In the workplace, are you tempted to ingratiate yourself to others for the purpose of office politics or angling for promotion? Each of these situations share something in common. They have the same seed as Absalom's underhanded greed. Perhaps these sinful struggles aren't on the same level as stealing a throne from your father, but they still represent a lack of faith in God's provision in his perfect timing. Faith, like we saw in David's patient waiting during the reign of Saul. Now, we need not puff ourselves up while we put others down. Instead, we can simply do what David did and pray to the Lord and ask for his help day after day. And if it's his will, God will provide because he is good. And this is what we find in Psalm 41, which is written by David himself. Psalm 41, starting with verse 7, says, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Many think that David wrote that with respect to Ahithophel. 
But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. David appeals for relief. He makes a request for God's grace. He turns his eyes to heaven. He focuses on eternity. And he reminds himself of the greatest gift that he could ever have, a gift greater than the throne. And that's God's permanent presence. This is the gift greater than friends, better than popularity, more powerful than political sway, and more fulfilling than promotion. Because if we have God's presence made available through the gospel of his son Jesus, then we have a treasure that's beyond price. We have something far more valuable than anything that we could find in life on this earth. And knowing God's unchanging and impeccable character and his presence has great power to change our perspective and any temptation that we have to jockey or wrangle or even betray for our own personal advantage. Well, news of Absalom's swelling support finally reaches David, forcing him to make a quick decision, which we find him doing in the next section, starting with verse 13. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now the hearts of Israel's men have gone after Absalom. This is the exact same construction that we find when King Solomon's heart goes after other gods. Absalom has effectively stolen the kingdom from his father. And knowing that his conspiring son will soon return to Jerusalem from Hebron with great potential for death and destruction, David chooses to flee the city and to do so quickly. We might be tempted to question this decision to flee. After all, he fled from Saul's threats, a period when it wasn't entirely clear that he was depending on God for guidance. But David wrote Psalm 3 during this very period of fleeing from Absalom, and it's clear that his heart is turned toward God. It's obvious that he's seeing the Lord as protector and looking to him for help. Look at Psalm 3 with me. Verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord your blessing be on your people. Now, like all of us, David's faith in God seems to ebb and flow. He's responded well in some circumstances and not so well in others. But here we see in the writing of this psalm, in the face of betrayal by his very own son, David expresses his trust in God. He turns his eyes to the heavens, the ultimate source of help in his desperate time of need. Now, thankfully, in his, in his situation, David is not alone. He has his household, his wives and children, and all his servants who express their loyalty to him in verse 15. 
And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. This is a decision that will bear tragic consequences in the next chapter. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. Now, it's not clear why David pauses here, uh, but as he does, he experiences three encouraging examples of heartwarming loyalty, starting in verse 18. And all his servants passed by him, and the Carathites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Now, David has quite an entourage with him as he departs the city. And three different groups are listed here. The Carathites, the Pelethites, and the Gittites. The Carathites and the Pelethites are often listed together when they appear in scriptures. And they seem to be from the region of Philistia in the general vicinity of the city Ziklag. They were potentially related to the Philistines or representatives of the Philistines. The Carathites and the Pelethites were part of David's corps of foreign mercenaries. These were professional soldiers who served as the king's bodyguards. And as foreigners, they would have been independent of the political drama that was in David's court, which clearly proves to be helpful in, his, in this particular instance of his son's betrayal. The same is true for the 600 Gittites. They appear uh, to be part of his protection too. These were men from the city of Gath in Philistia who had come to Jerusalem with David after his exile from Saul. And one of these Gittites is a recent addition whose name is Ittai. He had just arrived the previous day, just in time for David's kingdom to teeter. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Now, Ittai the Gittite is the first of three examples of heartwarming loyalty to David. David tries to convince Ittai to stay in Jerusalem with Absalom. He has no history with David, and David has no idea what will happen to him or where he will end up. But notice what David says in verse 19. You may have missed it when I read it. He refers to Absalom as the king. He does this twice more later on in the chapter. He's seemingly resigned to the fact that his son has stolen the kingdom for good. But the newcomer Ittai makes no such resignation. In verse 21, he's quite clear who he thinks the king is as he makes a profound statement of loyalty. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for life or for death, there also Will your servant be? The author of 2 Samuel makes the same emphasis. The word king appears 24 times in this chapter, and 21 of them are a reference to David. He uses king instead of David to emphasize who the true king is, the Lord's anointed, despite Absalom's clever and conniving conspiracy. The statement of loyalty from a relative stranger must have put steel in David's spine. And so he relents and he allows Ittai and his family to stay in the departing caravan. Verse 22. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones with him. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. 
Now, whatever frustrations Israel's tribes must have, been, must have had with David, whether created or exacerbated by Absalom's conspiracy at the gate, the people of Judah on the outskirts of Jerusalem felt the same way about David as Ittai. He is their king. And so they're understandably grieved by the flight of the court. It would have been a frightening and uncertain time for them to see the king and his entourage leaving and fleeing the royal city. And David and the hundreds with him crossed the Brook Kidron. It's highlighted on that map in yellow, which framed the eastern border of the city. And this would prefigure another king's betrayal hundreds of years later. The Apostle John emphasizes the similarities between David and Jesus in chapter 18 of his gospel. When Jesus had spoken this word, these words, he went out with his disciples across the Brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now in verse 24, we find the second example of heartwarming loyalty in the form of two priests, Abiathar and Zadok, who appear with the ark and the Levites in verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God, and they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Now you may remember Abiathar as the only priest to escape Saul's massacre of the priests at Nob back in 1 Samuel 22. And when he escaped, he fled to David, who offered him safety and shelter. And Abiathar subsequently served as priest to David's merry traveling band. And so there was fierce, long-standing loyalty between these two men. And Abiathar's fellow priest Zadok comes with the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark, as a reminder, was the wooden chest covered in gold that served as a, a visible sign of the Lord's holy presence. And after the Ark had been stolen by the Philistines and then housed for 70 years in the town of Kiriath-Jerim, David brought the Ark to the holy city of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6, and he built a tent for it. He wants to build a temple, but he builds a tent. And the priests think that it should stay with the true king. That's why they're bringing it with him. But David had other thoughts. And it's in his response to Abiathar and Zadok in verse 25 that we find further evidence of his faith. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahamaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait for the fords of the wilderness until word comes from me to inform you. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. You may remember, Abi, or, or sorry, according to David, the ark belongs to its tent in Jerusalem. And in God's, uh, if God's favor is with him, he will see its proper place once again. He believes that he will be restored to see it if it's God's will. This is clear evidence of his faith in God and in his providence. So David instructs the priest to carry it back, to take it back to Jerusalem. And in sending them back, he establishes a method for communicating with his supporters in Jerusalem. David will wait for a predetermined time when the priest's sons will send word from the city. So the priests, Abiathar and Zadok, they obey the king. They return to Jerusalem. And David continues his flight of mourning away from the city in verses 30 and 31. But David went up from the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, 
barefoot with his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is the first time in the Bible that the Mount of Olives is even mentioned. It was a prominent hill or ridge to the east of Jerusalem, just east of that brook that we saw on the map earlier. And it overlooked the city of Jerusalem. And it was significant, particularly in the life of Jesus. He visited it many times throughout his ministry, including three important instances in the last week of his life before his crucifixion. This is where he descended in Jerusalem during his triumphal entry. This is where he delivered the Olivet Discord, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is where he, betray, he was betrayed by Judas on the night of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, which sat on the hillside of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is also where Jesus would ascend into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. And according to Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 14.4, this will be the very site of his return. And so the location where David wept in defeat at the hands of his own son Absalom and the place where Jesus himself was betrayed with a kiss by his own friend is the same place where Jesus will return in awesome and majestic glory, triumphing over all of his enemies as he consummates his kingdom in its fullness. This is a very significant location. David is weeping and he's barefoot and he has his head covered. These are all signs of grief and mourning, which are understandable. And the people with him are mourning too. A millennium before Jesus was betrayed in this very place, David learns of yet another betrayal, his trusted counselor, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel's name means, my brother is foolishness. So it's, it's fitting that David responds with a faithful prayer, asking God to thwart Ahithophel's plans and turn them into foolishness for him to live up to his name, a prayer that God will soon answer. And as he reaches the top of the hill in verse 32, David experiences a third example of heartwarming loyalty in Hushai the Archite. Verse 32, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the Archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I'll be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahamaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Now Hushai bears the signs of mourning too, in torn clothes and dirt on his head. And though he's traveling with David and clearly intending to leave Jerusalem with the king, David has other plans. He wants Hushai to return to Jerusalem and pledge loyalty to Absalom to counter Ahithophel's foolish counsel. And as part of Absalom's court, he'll be privy to the rebellious son's ongoing plans. And the king asks his friend to use the priest's sons for any communication he wishes to get to David. And so Hushai agrees, and he returns to Jerusalem at the exact moment that Absalom is returning to the city from Hebron, where he has just declared himself as the rebel king. Now, in his Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives in the last week of his life, 
Uh, Jesus offered these words to his disciples as one of the signs of the end of the age. This is Matthew 24, 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. We can expect this. We can bank on it because Jesus promised it. And so the question is, what do we do when it happens to us? Well, in this chapter, we find pointers to our hope in Christ, both in David, the king who was betrayed, but also in the loyal love of his followers who encourage him as he flees. And David's flight out of Jerusalem was particularly painful because he was the one who had established the city as this new religious and political capital of Israel. Place mattered to the people of Israel. Their land had been promised by God. And there was a significance to being in the city, especially in Jerusalem. We see this inside-outside language all throughout the Old Testament. In the law, God had stipulated that certain activities needed to take place outside the camp, like burning the sacrifice sin offering. Or if someone had leprosy, he or she had to move outside the camp. If a person was sentenced to death by stoning, it had to happen outside the camp. There might be some obvious reasons for this, but outside the camp represented separation. It represented being unclean. It represented ritual impurity, and it also symbolized death. Perhaps this is why David pauses at the last house before leaving the city in exile. Now in Hebrews 13, the author reminds us that Jesus was crucified outside the gates of the city. He was treated like a common unclean criminal, unfit to remain in the city. This is Hebrews 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Jesus, our betrayed Savior, willingly, sacrificially, and lovingly endured his crucifixion on Golgotha outside the gates of Jerusalem, a place for the unclean. And he did so to sanctify his people, to make them clean and fit for his kingdom forever. Jesus died the death of a criminal outside the city so that all who place their trust in him and his precious shed blood might receive his righteousness, and the gift of eternal life as citizens in his coming and forever kingdom. But the grave could not hold Jesus, and he is very much alive today. He's ascended into heaven from the top of the Mount of Olives with angels promising that he will return exactly as he left. And when he comes back, he's going to come back as king, and he's going to come back as judge, and he's our only hope. He's our only hope for salvation. And so if you're here today and this is the first time that you've heard this, you've not yet put your trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for salvation, I want to encourage you to consider these promises. Uh, anyone who's here who's a member of this church, including myself, would love to talk with you about this wonderfully good news if you have questions or do you like to know more about what it means to follow a betrayed Savior. The author of Hebrews instructs us to go outside outside to Jesus, outside the camp, so that we might bear his reproach. Because the call to join Jesus is a radical one. It means that we're willing to give up everything to follow him. 
And when we do, Jesus promised us that we would suffer, that we would be betrayed, that we would experience persecution, that people would call us foolish and make fun of us. And when these things happen, and many more that I could list, we're sharing in the sufferings of our betrayed Savior who suffered outside the gate so that we might be made clean. Bear his reproach. Do not kick against the goads, but recognize that when rejection and betrayal come, Jesus is using it to sanctify us as his people. We can endure betrayal and suffering because like David, we know that God is at work to accomplish his holy will in his perfect timing. We can endure suffering and betrayal because we have a Savior who was betrayed too, who understands our pain. We can endure betrayal and suffering because we do not have a lasting city here. We wait for a new and better Jerusalem to come. And Jesus came to this earth as Emmanuel, God with us, fully God and fully man, worthy of all glory and honor. But he humbled himself by taking on flesh, becoming a man, and suffering the death of a criminal on a cross. And he did this so that by believing in him, we might find abundant life in his name. And the fact that Jesus died outside the city or outside the camp merely adds to the humiliation and the reproach associated with his death and the lengths that he was willing to go from the heights of heaven to save us from our sin. And he did this because of the loyal, unfailing love that he has for his people. Though we've betrayed God through our sin, he offers his never-ceasing loving kindness to all who will bow their knee to his betrayed and sacrificed son. There's no greater love in this world than the love that Jesus demonstrated for us in his sacrifice on our behalf. So how will you respond to the one who has already been rejected? In the face of betrayal, bear Christ's reproach and seek his eternal city. Look to the promised new Jerusalem marked by the loyal love of a good and gracious God, a place with no betrayal, no reproach, no suffering, and no tears. It's coming. Jesus said he's coming back. When my friends ghosted me in eighth grade, I wish I had known this comforting truth of the gospel. Uh, I wouldn't experience salvation for another four years. But God used one of the very first people that I would meet in high school to draw me to faith in Christ, a friend named Ted. Uh, Ted quickly became my best friend after a whole year where I had no friends. And he came from a Christian family, and um, he invited me to his youth group, and that's where I heard the gospel. That's where I became a Christian. But if those neighbor, neighborhood friends hadn't done what they did, Ted and I may, might not have ever become the friends that we were. Trust in God's goodness and his faithfulness, even in the midst of the deepest, darkest betrayal, because he's at work. Run to the betrayed Savior in faith. Bear his reproach as you suffer in his name. And when you face rejection in this city, keep your eyes fixed brothers and sisters, on the kingdom to come because a far better city awaits those who are in Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your loving kindness to us that you saw fit to have a plan 
to address our sin. And Jesus, we can't understand all that you endured on this earth. But we know that you suffered for us. And we know that we can run to you in faith. And we know that you will receive us. And so I pray for all of us here, all of us who have experienced betrayal, perhaps that still has sensitive wounds or those that have yet to face it, that we would bear your reproach, Jesus, and that we would all keep our eyes fixed by faith, by the power that your spirit supplies, keep our eyes fixed on the city to come. Thank you for preparing it for us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.